You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. finally got our first snow of the year. Welcome back to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. And uh, yeah, it's starting to feel like the holidays. But before we get too far into that, I do want to bring up today's guest is uh, Ed Farley from Ducks Unlimited. So we're really excited when we talked about some of the the hunting conservation organizations. This was number one at the top of our list. It was number one. Not the first one we've had on, but definitely number one that we wanted to have on. Yes, yes. So, So... but like I was saying, it does feel like the holidays. It's Christmas is at this what recording is right around the corner. By the time you're listening to this, it might be a day It'll or two be after. after Christmas. Or, yeah, I'll tell you what my, <laughs> my my back is officially killing me after this. <laughs> yeah. So the the snow turned to ice, and my driveway is three cars deep and three cars wide. And when you're in the middle of the driveway, you're in no man's land. Yeah. You you really are. And I am <laughs> two hours of shoveling this morning. And I know you could say, why don't you have a like a snowblower? I'm getting ready yeah. to move, so I don't. It's like my we last. We don't get enough and, snow we here don't. in New Jersey anyway to to really justify. It. But it is nice when when you do have it for those times that we do get snow like this. I I feel so old because I, I actually these words came out of my mouth. My hip hurts. <laughs> my hip is killing me. Like that's <laughs> that's I feel old. But, but you're not one to complain. Uh, so. Not that I'm one to complain. So. Um, speaking of the holidays, are you and your wife excited about we, your son's first Christmas? We are. It's, uh, I was telling my, my mom about the meme that's going around right now. And it's like, the kid is like so excited when they're opening up their Christmas presents and the dad is equally excited to see what they got. Cause they have no, clue. that's kind of the same, same situation we're in, in my house. I, she showed me briefly the other night what we got, but I don't remember other than, uh, well, I don't want to ruin the surprise for him, so yeah, yeah, I, he, he might be a listener. <laughs> case, just in case he's listening, I uh, I used to be in charge of of all the the because I'm I was relentless getting you know like the hot present or the big present mm-hmm. like so I I was actually the one that that knew everything that was being bought and and their mothers. Yeah. Are, I'm mother just not no I'm not much of a shopper. And I'm a last minute shopper too. Oh, so. yeah. No, I, I I dig shopping. That's <laughs> it's uh you know I remember those days. You know, obviously my kids are older now, mm-hmm. um, so it's a little bit different. But I I really remember the days of of going crazy trying to get that stuff yeah. and keeping it secret, like hiding hiding the stuff and 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 going through all that. So it's it's uh I'm to the point where they're old enough where I'm wondering when I'm going to see them. For, yeah, for Christmas, oh, yeah. you know, I I just have one of my boys for Christmas, and then they're flip flopping. Yep. So it's you know it's it's funny the things you take for granted as yeah, and as it seems one. like for me it seems like it's so far away. But even just the past six months, just turned six months uh, a couple weeks ago, the past six months flew by, and it's just yeah. amazing just the day to day changes that are happening. It's oh, like, man, totally. you used to be this little tiny thing, and now you barely even fit my arms, and you don't want to be there anyway. You're trying to squirm around and get out, but. But with that, I think we should get into today's de- guest because this I, is that's a great. They're idea. doing some pretty cool stuff, and I don't want to short short change. No, and I'm excited about this one, and and you have to keep me on on track. Yeah, anyway. yeah. So Ed, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, and then then about Ducks Unlimited? Well, thank you all very much for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to 
to talk about Ducks Unlimited and, and what we do. Um, I'm originally from North Carolina, and I grew up in a duck hunting family, and that's kind of where I got involved with Ducks Unlimited. My grandfather and father were you know, both heavily involved as volunteers with the organization, and so it was kind of a natural fit for me. And growing up, actually, it was kind of the my dream to be a biologist for Ducks Unlimited. Nice. I didn't even want to say it. It was just seemed like it was too good to be true. And here we are, you know, not that far from then. And I seem to have made it happen through a, a lot of help from a lot of people. And I'm currently the regional biologist for um, New York. So that's okay. my, I cover the state of New York. And except for Long Island, another colleague of mine covers Long Island since it fits more in with his program. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty neat opportunity to help deliver some conservation of wetlands in the state of New York. That's a pretty big area to cover too. Are there areas where there are more people covering – like does every state have you know one person or two people that does do that or does it really vary by region? It varies by region. Um, so the way Ducks Unlimited is, is kind of set up is we have priority areas because you know, as everyone knows, money is a limiting factor and time as well. And so we try to really be – cognizant of that and focus our time and money in areas that are of you know big importance to waterfowl specifically and so areas like the prairie pothole region and the mississippi alluvial valley okay. they might have you know they'll have a greater concentration of biologists delivering conservation in those regions gotcha. and so you know areas of higher priorities have more people working mm-hmm. and areas of slightly lower priorities you know might have a few few less and here in gotcha. new york while I may cover the whole state, our priority areas our priority areas don't cover the entire state. Gotcha. You know, I'm mostly working up in the um, the Lake Ontario, Lake Plain, um, in the St. Lawrence uh, kind of okay. watershed up there. Mm-hmm. So, gotcha. For for our listeners that maybe aren't as familiar with with ducks or duck habitat, could you describe the perfect duck habitat? Uh, what where where they thrive? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, that's a little bit of a, a tough question because ducks are such a diverse uh, you know, group that it could be pretty much any any wetland or, to be honest, any upland. I mean, there's a lot of different habitat that they need, but kind of the the classic duck habitat that I like to, to focus on is kind of shallow, emergent wetlands, um, especially sometimes seasonally flooded ones that aren't wet throughout the Mm -hmm. entire course of the year so it's kind of um important that they have that kind of emergent cover 50 to 50 ratio of open water to you know emergent plants that's kind of research has shown that that's kind of appropriate for them and that they find ducks in the greatest densities in those kinds of wetlands okay awesome and would would you say that there's comparable wildlife species that need that same type of habitat oh definitely like companion species i guess mm-hmm. yeah i mean wherever you find ducks you're going to find a lot of different other you know wetland dependent species i did my um, graduate research at suny esf and i studied uh wetland management and okay. its effects that it has on you know, birds and plants and so that bit went beyond just waterfowl and the wetlands that were good for waterfowl were often, you know, great for species such as rails and 
coots and gallinules and other water birds like that. Um, Piedbill grebes are another good one. So these birds also like that that hemi marsh condition where it's kind of 50% open water interspersed with you know 50% uh, vegetative cover. So when you're helping one species, you're helping multiple multiple species. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. And I do want to ask because we tend to lump ducks into one category, but there's so many different species of ducks. I guess my question would be, how many species of ducks are there, uh, I guess, native to North America, but even more specifically native to New York, New Jersey, that area? Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, let me think about it. There's a <laughs> a ton. There's over there's over 30 species of, of ducks in North America alone. I think in terms of waterfowl, which includes geese and swans as well, I think it's about 45 species wow. in wow. North America. So that's and they all need <laughs> different things, like a green-winged teal, which is you know, the smallest duck in North America. Uh, it can't feed very deep. It needs just a few inches of water, whereas you have something like a long-tailed duck, which needs, you know, it's been recorded diving over 200 feet wow. in water. So it's a really diverse group, and yeah. I love it. It's kind of fun to work with them when there's just so many different, uh, so much diversity. Yeah, and I guess... One of the things that you also kind of I started to think about was when I used to duck hunt a little bit more when I was younger, you'd see you you'd probably get a, a maybe four oh if it's a good day four or five different species of ducks. Where if you're going deer hunting, you're really only mm-hmm. you're going after yeah. one species. Turkeys, you're going after one species. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I guess yeah. Wherever you are in the country, there's only only one species of turkey that you're yeah. you're going after. But ducks, mm-hmm. you're, I know from a lot of my friends that are duck hunters now, they take a lot of pride when they get a specific species of duck that might be a little bit um, less common or in that area or, or something like that, or less uh, or harder to to harvest. Definitely. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's an interesting component I hadn't really processed until right now. Yeah, that's one of the, you know, my favorite days of the, the days when you get, you know, a bunch of different species because – that's one thing that I love to do is, you know, after I harvest a bird, I like to hold it and kind of look at it and really appreciate these unique morphological differences that you might see between them. Mm-hmm. You've got an American widgeon that's got a short bill that's made for clipping vegetation. Then you've got like a northern shoveler, completely different bill. It's, mm-hmm. you know, designed perfectly for filter feeding and eating a lot of those aquatic invertebrates. So it's just a lot of fun yeah. and even just the colorations between species and species and some might have like a band around their neck or a different color head or just the the iridescence i guess is the right word like a, a mallard can kind of has like yeah. that iridescent green head or at least the drake where mm-hmm. the female is is more of a speckled brown and yeah it's uh they're very unique not even not even just between species of ducks but even between male versus female a lot of times oh yeah and it's it's there's subtle differences in the uh, even between males of the same species that you'll see, and sometimes it's really neat to find, you know, a weird-looking bird that has a little bit extra white here, a little bit less, of, you know, black in the wing, and so it's it's like you say, it's just kind of exciting to have all that the difference that you can mm-hmm. appreciate and enjoy. It's you, one of my favorite parts about it. You know, it's funny as a non-hunter, I, you know, we knew we had this episode coming up. But again, it's one of those, you know, those hitch moments where I'm, I realized my fiance and I were, were taking a, a hike 
we were around a, a small pond and there were ducks and typically here you see canadian geese like mm-hmm. you may get snow geese that fly over but it's mainly canadian geese but there were actually ducks mm-hmm. in the pond that i didn't know what they were <laughs> i almost <laughs> took a picture i almost took a picture and sent them to you tom yeah. like i need you to id yeah. these these ducks for me but, i'm definitely not a, a duck expert by any means i know your basic ones but that's about but it. it was very humbling mm-hmm. to me because i'm like god oh, that's another component component of this that I'm just yeah. not that familiar yeah. with. And and uh, uh, I can't think of the right word, but in something from the hunter's aspect, you need to be able to identify these when they're flying at a distance as well. Yeah. And uh, and some of these ducks, like you mentioned, the green-winged teal are incredibly fast. So <laughs> it's, it's – um, but I guess we should move on a little bit more and talk about – Maybe like backtrack actually. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like so we 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 jumped right into ducks. But yeah. <laughs> what is Ducks Unlimited's mission? Your your mm-hmm. overall mission in you know in reference to ducks. Yeah. So you know Ducks Unlimited, our mission is to conserve, restore, and manage wetlands and the associated habitats for North America's waterfowl, and these habitats also benefit other wildlife and people, and that kind of plays into our vision. And the vision of Ducks Unlimited is. You know, wetlands sufficient to fill the skies with waterfowl today, tomorrow, and forever. And so we're really focused on on the wetland habitat and also the associated uplands for waterfowl. And that's where we're coming from. That That's a great mission. So speaking of which, with conserving, is is there an issue? Like is how are current duck numbers or are there any that are in danger or any that are, be you know, becoming rarer to find or, or in decline? Yeah, so, you know, waterfowl uh, numbers as a whole are doing uh, pretty well according to their long-term averages, but certain species are definitely not doing as well. Um, Lesser scop and greater scop, they don't, when they count them, because they're so similar, they kind of lump them together. The scop numbers are um, not doing great, and thus they've kind of limited the, the harvest a little bit. And same thing in the Atlantic flyway with mallards. So you might see a mallard and think that's, you know, it is the most common duck in North America, but the numbers in the Atlantic flyway are declining. And so they've recently had to cut back the bag limits on those. And so there are definitely a lot of issues regarding waterfowl and the wetlands in particular, because a lot of people don't see the the value of wetlands. Okay. And as a result, they're often, you know, at risk of being destroyed. Are, are there any ducks in recent history that have disappeared or went extinct? Yeah. Um, in North America, the, the Labrador duck okay. went extinct. That was – it was never a common duck, but it was kind of a combination of habitat loss, um, disturbance, and I think maybe a little bit of hunting pressure that caused it to go extinct. That's probably, if I'm thinking, the most recent one in North America. And then there's a couple others like the pink-headed duck in um, – uh, Asia that mm. went extinct, but okay. luckily we haven't lost too many of them in North America. What what would be the biggest reasons for decline? Is is there one like big culprit, or is it a, just a combination? Like you you mentioned loss of habitat, I, I would imagine that plays in. Yeah, I would say that habitat loss is probably the number one driver of declines in in waterfowl populations. Now, individual species face different risks and threats. But overall, habitat loss is the the biggest driver. Is there like are we in? I I know for a very long time this has been uh, 
the mission of Ducks Unlimited, but are we in an, a, a time period where the greatest amount of conservation is taking place? Like, is this the golden age of, of Ducks Unlimited right now, or are you on par with where you were maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Yeah, I would say that we're we're definitely in a, in a golden age for wetlands conservation and with Ducks Unlimited. I know that this was a, an incredibly difficult year because of issues with the the pandemic and Mm -hmm. um despite all that you know we conserved over 600,000 acres of wetland habitat in this year which i find just absolutely incredible that's phenomenal that's i i wouldn't have guessed that number there's no way i would have (laughs) like if you said guess how many this year i wouldn't i would have been way low (laughs) yep that's our we've that's the impact we've had i think a lot of that you know, Ducks Unlimited Canada has done a lot of great work up in the boreal forest, mm-hmm. and that's a vast area, and so it's there's a lot of acreage to work with up there. <laughs> awesome. And so when you say that the complications due to the pandemic, I'm assuming, like a lot of these other organizations that we've talked to, you get a, a good portion of your funding through um, some of these banquets, like the local chapter banquets and those kind of things. Were there other complications other than that, or...? Yeah, so, you know, grassroots fundraising that comes from our event system, you know, those banquets that everyone knows and loves, those were very curtailed this year. And so that was, you know, a a huge part of our difficulties this year. Luckily, we were able to mitigate that effect because our fundraising staff and volunteers, they teamed up and they kind of came up with some groundbreaking online fundraising, which kind of helped a lot. But the other problem came from the other side where, you know, we pursue a lot of grants and other public funding and say, you know, in a lot of states, the budgets are in pretty rough shape overall. So like New York State, you know, the budget is in, in not a good good mm-hmm. place. And so often conservation funding can be the first cut or one of the earlier things cut. And so that definitely hurt us as well. I can imagine. It's been a tough year on on all these fronts and everyone had to reimagine the wheel on how to, mm-hmm. to do these things. So it's nice to hear some success stories as far as that goes, as far as looking at it and saying, how can we better, you know, how can we manage this situation the way it is? So, you know, ahead, one of the things we wanted to ask being that we're, our podcast is native plants, healthy planet. We got to talk about plants. Yes. <laughs> and I want to know some of the, the best native plants that are out there for ducks, but I guess, I guess it probably New York for, Let's yeah, just say it, for your area. Well, probably mm-hmm. changes too because of the species of duck. They, yeah. like you said, some are filter yeah. feeders, some are feeding on different things. But, but then, as well, they're also migrating. Mm-hmm. So, Definitely. So, yeah, I would imagine they have to find those similar yeah. species along their migration path, and I would imagine that you have nesting, nesting cover, mm-hmm. and food source yeah. as well. So mm-hmm. it's a, a numerous different plants. Oh yeah, it's definitely the the. The type of plants that waterfowl need is incredibly diverse, and you know, in the prairies, upland grasses are, you know, vitally important. They may not be eating them, but that, that nesting cover is absolutely crucial for them. And then sometimes when they start staging for migration, collecting those carbohydrates is really important. So seed-rich plants like, you know, the wild millets, uh, rice cut grass, wild rice. Those become very important to a lot of dabbling ducks. And then there's there's other ducks that, like you say, they're so diverse, they need a lot of different plants. Some, like camasback, this is really neat. So the, the camasback is, its scientific name comes from a plant. So 
wild celery is oh, okay. an incredibly important food source for camasbacks, and that's Valisneria americana is the wild celery plant. That's yeah. the scientific name. Yeah. And the scientific name for camasback is Ithia valisneria. So it comes directly oh, wow. from that plant because of how important it is to camasbacks. And that's a that's actually from a nursery perspective. You know, our our we we specialize in wetlands and, and salt marsh, but that's a very difficult one to produce in a nursery. It's a it's an aquatic, so you can grow it. You have to grow it in water, mm-hmm. but once you take it out of water to ship it, it dies. So you mm-hmm. almost have to do it from tubers or, or mm-hmm. something like that. Like you can't actually. It's hard to to ship a live plant, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it's it makes it more difficult. So that's something for an aquatic. It it lives in three three feet of water, inundation mm-hmm. or deeper. So yeah, and that's because canvasbacks are they're diving ducks. So that uh-huh. submerged aquatic vegetation is pretty important for them, and and the loss of those uh, SAV, which is submerged aquatic vegetation, is a pretty big threat towards species like canvasback. Nice. So since. You know, with with all the restoration, one thing I, I wanted to ask that I almost forgot to ask was, if we're in the golden age, have you seen numbers increasing? Is that like, is it? I, I'm sure there's a lot of things that you're battling, even though we're in the golden mm-hmm. age. Like, I'm sure that land is disappearing or habitats disappearing, probably at a rate faster than you can create it. Um, are, are you seeing an increase, or is it still just like maybe holding steady? I think it's it's kind of it's hard to say because there's so many different drivers gotcha. of waterfowl populations. Like one of the largest is is precipitation and water in the prairies. So if you have a heavy snow year in the prairies that causes a lot of spring snowmelt, mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of ducks the next year, regardless of um, you know how much that ducks alone can put on the ground. Okay. And and also, like you say, we're trying to to fight the loss of wetlands and no matter how much that we can put on there, there's always going to be some, someone who's out there doing the other, the opposite mm-hmm. and taking it out of the landscape. And so we're trying to, trying to make a difference and constantly working at it. So I can't say for sure whether or not we've directly caused an increase in waterfowl populations, but I like to think we, we've helped keep them from declining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, to me, the next, this question you would think, it's a given to me, but I'm asking it because, you know, what I, I'm realizing even though I think it's a given, I don't, I don't really know the answer. But how important for your conservation or restoration are native plants? Um, is that when you're doing a restoration, are you, are you strictly using native plants, given that that's their their native food source, or are they adapting yeah, they're, to exotics? They're, you know, native plants are incredibly important to waterfowl, and so that's something that we definitely try and keep in mind if we're if we're planting or seeding, we focus on native plants um, for a number of reasons, you know, specifically because, like you say, they're they're good for waterfowl. But waterfowl are incredibly adaptive. I know a number of puddle ducks, agricultural crops are a, a mm-hmm. large food source for them. Okay. So, you know, mallards in particular, they really enjoy corn. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So that's one thing that they really like. But when we're doing restorations, we definitely focus on native species. Okay. All right. Are there are there and you kind of mentioned it earlier. Are like let's I, I I know Tom and I would both love to get into like the conservation part of it mm-hmm. um, or restoration. Um, the priority areas throughout North America. Where mm-hmm. where would the focus be right 
right now? So there's a lot of different um, priority areas. I'm not as familiar with the priority areas, say, in the Pacific Flyway. Okay. Um, and then the, our number one priorities, though, you know, the prairies, because that's the prairie pothole region produces, you know, millions of ducks every year. That's the, you know, that's a big one. And then the Mississippi Alluvial Valley, which is that you know, floodplain along the Mississippi River, mm-hmm. that's also a number one priority for Ducks Unlimited because all those ducks that are up in the prairies, or a lot of them, you know, they winter down in the that area in the Mississippi Alluvial Valley. So those are both vitally important habitats, and that's why they're high priorities for us. Here okay. in the Atlantic Flyway, the, you know, the St. Lawrence River is a you know, really important migration corridor, and so that's why that's one of our priority areas here in New York. Okay. So, you know, let's let's just say we're starting with a conservation pro- project, you know, and, and again, a lot of these questions I'm asking is because I really – like once I started – looking into this i really didn't know <laughs> and it's um the the land for say like a new conservation pro- project is it private land is it public land are you working with other nonprofits are you landowners um, is it a combination of all of those yes it's a combination of all of those so we're we're very versatile and i'd like like to think that we're pretty uh nimble on our feet and so we have the flexibility to do what it takes to conserve the habitat. So a lot of the time we'll work with a partner, say the New York Department of Environmental Conservation. Okay. They have a wildlife management area and they have a some a, a spot they'd like to restore to wetlands. You know, they've got agricultural land on there and they say, you know, we'd like to bring this back to wetland. So we'll partner with them and help deliver a wetland restoration on their on their property. We also do work on private lands because, you know, private lands represent the largest percentage of land in the country. So we have to work where the ducks are and that's a lot of times on private land. And then like you say, often we do buy land as well. Um, It's not as much of a focus for us, but we do do it. And although we don't like to be long-term landholders, sometimes buying land and transferring it to say, you know, the refuge system or a wildlife management area, it makes the most sense. Okay. All right. And, so let's just say you have land now. Where does the funding come from to, to start a project? So if we have – so if Ducks Unlimited, say, buys land, that funding can come from a variety of sources, whether it be you know, in-lieu fee mitigation or you know, private dollars. If we go to, say, a foundation and say, here's what we want to do and we need some money, and then a, you know, a corporate partner – may say, all right, that makes sense, and they'll give us some money, and we'll go out and buy the land in question. Okay, That's where a lot of the money comes from. And also, one of our biggest sources comes from public funding through okay. grants, such as the North American uh, Wetlands Conservation Act, which is also known as NACA. That's, that's one of our biggest drivers of <laughs> funding. It's very okay. important to us. Awesome. And Tom, you, you probably know this off the top of your head. Ducks Unlimited, a mem- member of CWRP? Corporate I wetland restoration. They are, but I don't remember. <laughs> I'm I pretty thought sure I, they were. I thought I remember seeing I, that, and that's why I brought it up. But, and I know there's different chapters throughout the diff, you know, the the United States. So I thought they were a member of the New Jersey. Yes, chapter. they are. Yeah. Okay. Yep, All right. right so, and I would imagine that's a great network for funding. Also, oh, yeah. that's mm-hmm. uh, find, or finding partners to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. So you have the land. You have the funding. What's where? Where do you start? Like, what's uh, 
what's what's your next step? So you know, Ducks Unlimited is really neat because we have a full range of you know uh, services that we can provide for restoration. So we take this land and we say, all right, we'll go out and send our engineering staff, and they'll go out and they'll do a topographic survey to say what con- the current conditions are. And then we can use that survey, and then those engineers can then design a wetland. They okay. use all that information, soil, and they kind of put it together and design a wetland, and we'll work with our partners who may or may not be stakeholders on this specific project. And then you know we all work together and say, all right, here are the goals of this particular restoration. And then from there, we'll work together and design a wetland. And then after that, we take the money and we hire out a, a contractor and they'll go out there and they'll they'll build the wetland. Okay. All right. Awesome. You know, and it's one of the things we've been preaching, especially the last few episodes, is stewardship and how important mm-hmm. stewardship – you can't just conserve something or restore something, which are two totally different things. Or, mm-hmm. And the debate even what conserving is. Yeah. Um, and you can't just walk away from it and say, okay, I'm assuming that that it may be Ducks Unlimited that, that's the steward, or like you said, if it gets handed off to uh, a preserve or something mm-hmm. like that. Or, But I'm assuming it's not just the monitoring of how that ecosystem works. It's it's for the ducks as well. You want to know that it's it's working for that habitat. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the challenges with, with that? And I'm, you know, I'm assuming that stewardship happens maybe so often afterwards or – Mm-hmm. So a lot of our projects, you know, like you say, long-term stewardship is incredibly important. And Ducks Unlimited, we like to, you know, in general, hand that responsibility off to our partners. We'll provide the, the you know, the restoration and we'll work with our partners, say, if we do a project on state land or federal land, and we'll give them, you know, kind of a, a plan for how to manage it. And then the management falls to them. But Wetland management is often a key component of our projects that involve, you know, restoration, where we'll go out and put a water control structure in that gives these wetland managers the capability to manipulate water levels. And water level manipulation is often really important for providing quality waterfowl habitat. Okay. All right. Awesome. And what what would you say or who would you say are – are some of uh, you, you mentioned a few already, like m- maybe the more common partners or champions mm-hmm. that you work with? Is it nonprofit? Is it corporations that that get involved with this as well? Yeah, I mean we we work with anyone interested in conserving wetlands. That's okay. we're equal opportunity. We love to work <laughs> with <laughs> partners like the the National Audubon Society. They're a big partner of ours, mm-hmm. as are you know governmental organizations such as the. Department of Environmental Conservation here in New York. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is a huge partner. Yeah. And we also have corporate partners, like you said, like um, Cargill is a big partner of ours. And okay. They provide a lot of generous funding that helps us deliver projects. Awesome. Awesome. That's a, that's all great, great organizations you just mentioned. Yeah. So, did you have a. Did, I felt like I, I was well, going to cut you off. I had a question that's going to take us in a different direction. Go ahead. So if you I'm, no, I'm I'm good. That that basically just walked us through a whole conservation yeah, effort. Yeah. Is you know where the land came from, the money, what happens, what happens afterwards. So, well, I guess my question is one of the things I don't think a lot of our listeners um, probably even realize is is some of the uh, the funding that is is uh, going to 
ducks is actually coming through uh, duck stamps. Mm-hmm. Uh, they might not even know the duck stamps exist. I, I didn't until you mentioned and, it to me yesterday. I had no idea what a duck stamp was. And, uh, and it's a pretty unique system, even in um, wildlife uh, conservation. Um, can, can you tell us a little bit about the duck stamp and, and how that system works, really? Yeah, uh, the duck stamp is a really, really cool piece of conservation that it came about in um, 1934, I think. And I think Franklin Roosevelt signed it into law where if you hunt waterfowl, you requ- are required to purchase a, a duck stamp, which is a, you know, a migratory bird um, hunting stamp. And it's like a, it's literally a stamp. And it costs, at, when it first came in, I think it cost a dollar. Mm-hmm. Currently, it costs twenty-five dollars. Okay. And of that money, I'd ha- I can't tell you the exact percentage, but I think it's around ninety-eight percent of that money that you spend on a duck stamp. Ninety-eight percent goes directly to buying land for the National Wildlife Refuge System. Wow! And so, that's, that's the same percentage I just heard. So I'll back you up on that. It's it's oh nice. Wow! Yeah. Wow! <laughs> that makes me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> wow! That's you know it's funny because I I just saw right before this a big article for the National Wildlife Refuge System because they seized $42 million street value of of drugs (laughs) (laughs) this December. So I was, you know, and that's another thing that you don't think that they're a part of too, but there's so many different Mm -hmm. facets of that. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize that until you told me, first I didn't know the stamp existed, but that's what the money for the stamp went to. Yeah, and it's, Mm -hmm. it's, you you go ahead. I was just going to say it's it's really cool that for a long time, you know, the duck stamp has risen in value or in price over time, you know, as you would expect with inflation. Mm-hmm. For a long time, it stagnated at, I think, $15. Mm-hmm. And in 2015, that jumped up to $25. And wow. one of the biggest drivers of that increase was hunters themselves. Mm-hmm. So it was sportsmen and hunters that said, you know, we understand that this would be more expensive for us. But we know that it's a good cause, and so they fought to increase the cost, which I think is just really incredible, and you don't hear about that kind of thing very often. Is there an increase in the amount of hunters for waterfowl? Actually, no. I, okay. I'm not as familiar with the, the specific numbers, but the overall trend in hunting in general and waterfowl hunting in, you know, specifically is down. Okay. So we're, we're losing hunters over time. It, it, it's funny that the two articles that I saw yesterday was the the, the drug seize, but also it was a Ducks Unlimited article that um, I guess you just uh, acquired 27,000 acres in the Florida Everglades, which mm-hmm. I guess was the, the largest land acquisition, I think, if I remember correctly. I'm trying to – I don't remember, but – or one of the largest. Mm-hmm. Which is huge, especially yeah. in a critical yeah. area like that that I know is is under pressure. Definitely. That's a very – it was a incredible gift, and Ducks Unlimited is very grateful to be able to be a part of that and kind of contribute towards con- like conserving and protecting, you know, like you said, 27,000 acres, which is – it's no small feat. No, <laughs> no. And – that's you know, and again, that's going to take a lot of stewardship. Even if it's in in pristine condition, I would imagine. That, oh, for sure. Yeah, it's more than just saying we have this and it's safe. It's exactly it's taking care of that area as well. 
So definitely, I, I want to hit on one more thing with the duck stamp. We'll oh, back up just a little bit, but another thing when I was telling Fran about it the other day was uh, I know I, I don't do this personally, but I know a lot of people actually buy two for mm-hmm. duck stamps because they'll buy one to put on their their license, and then uh, they'll actually use the other one. They'll have a collection, and some of these real old timers they'll have decades worth of duck stamps. Like you said, it started in night or. 1934 or yeah. somewhere around mm-hmm. then um so they have decades worth of duck stamps and um and i think they even do larger prints of them as well so then they'll even have the larger print and then put their stamp on it to kind of form a collection out of it because it's i guess another thing we should mention about the duck stamp is it's not like it's a uh just a regular stamp it's actually a a, a decorative a decorative type. like painting almost okay yeah um, it's a work of art yeah and i think it's there's artists of submit like uh their work to be approved as a duck stamp every year do you do you know the answer to that or yeah so it's actually a contest so what they do is you have um a a group of artists they'll all make a painting of a you know waterfowl species and they'll put it up for the contest and then the winning um artist gets chosen as the duck stamp Mm -hmm. and that um so for that year then you'll have you know a picture of you know whatever's on there this year it's a black-bellied whistling duck i just pulled it out of my wallet and looking at it right <laughs> <Yeah>. now <laughs> and that's great because all that money is going to such a great cause just for their own yeah. collection and so it's and you can just get these i think i last time i bought one was right at the post office um yep like you're you buying a normal stamp you just go right at the post office. i'm not sure where else you can get them but you um, can get them at the post office at you know uh anywhere you can get a hunting license most of the time you can mm-hmm. get a duck stamp and you can also order them online mm-hmm. uh, so oh, wow yeah but what? yeah I, I went right to the post office and got it and um and uh i know a lot of my friends that get them as well but uh it's something that really anyone can get if you if you're into uh making a difference want to contribute directly to habit like like we said 98 percent of those dollars that 25 dollars goes directly to habitat conservation you don't necessarily have to be a, a hunter to get one Anyone can no, get one, and all. it's really oh, okay. a contribution that you're making, and it's, I guess that would be 24 and dollars and 50 cents are going directly. You know, it. it's funny. I was just going to ask you that because I was mm. like, did you have to show, like, a license to get that? Or, like, no, anyone no, could just any- go in. If you want to if you want to contribute to it, you can contribute that way by going and buying a stamp. Yeah, I think anyone and can It's get not just duck hunters that, that buy yeah. them. I mean, bird watchers, they're another constituency that oh. they buy them just from the goodness of their heart. You know, they don't, in most cases, aren't required to buy one, and so... But they still go out and contribute and, you know, pay their way. You know, until you just said that, that's one aspect I hadn't thought about were bird watchers as far as uh, the conservation efforts, just being a part of that. Like with New Jersey Audubon or National Audubon, mm-hmm. I, I would understand why that's a big part of that. Yeah, yeah. And there's another program I even heard of, I think is a, a, another uh, hunter conservationist, Sam Soholt, who has a program called like Stamp It Forward, okay. where he buys, I think, hundreds of duck stamps oh and then you can actually get it from him and it's a little bit more money but it's all going towards towards conservation and uh, i have to look up more about that program Man, talk about it more. i'm learning but, a, i'm learning a lot today yeah. i had no idea about any of this so that's a great way to contribute or be a part of conservation uh mm-hmm. just by yeah. going and purchasing a stamp yeah. so and you get something a neat little work of art when you do it mm-hmm. oh that's that's awesome so what would you say – I'm going to change the subject a little bit. What would you say 
in your tenure is the greatest success story that you've been a part of? Not not Ducks Unlimited overall greatest success story. What would you say that your favorite or, or your best success story would be? Mm, oh, that's a that's a tough question. You know, I love love all these projects. Um, you know, previous previously I was working as a mitigation specialist, and I just recently shifted over to our conservation program in August. Okay. And um, you know, working in the mitigation program, we've done a lot of you know you know really cool projects. And but in the conservation side, we my predecessor, Brandy Neveldine, she did a really neat project over in the Montezuma wetlands complex okay. on Northern Montezuma wildlife management area. And I think it's a, a really cool success story is there was a, an agricultural field. It was planted in corn and they took it and we worked with the state of New York who owns it. And we designed and um, delivered a wetland restoration there. So right on the, the bank of the Seneca River, what was once a cornfield is now a, a natural, you know, wetland. Oh, and it's awesome. it's a really cool project. It's you know, I think about a hundred acres, a little more than that. And it's also coincidentally it's about a minute down the road from my house. So I'm Oh, that's awesome. You get I get to, to see it every day, yeah. which is kinda nice. <laughs> yeah. Is there any like North America success story that's kinda legendary where where uh everyone talks about it they're like oh we want another one of these mm. oh i'm sure there is i'm put me on the spot i'm blanking oh, right now <laughs> <laughs> well that's a that's a large i'm sure throughout the decades and throughout the north america mm-hmm. there's so many vast ones that it's hard to you know you're you're working hard in your area and there's there's very many people doing the same thing all over north america oh so, definitely yeah what what would you say all right i'll shift gears a little bit what would you say for the novice like myself what's the the biggest misconception about ducks that most people get wrong or they like you hear it and you're like oh that's not true oh yeah i mean i think i think it's that uh the the biggest misconception that i see often is that ducks like a pond you always hear oh you know it's a duck pond. We'll hear it from from certain people. They say all ducks unlimited wants to do is dig duck ponds. Well, yeah. it's so much more than that. It's it's the plants. I mean, I don't have to tell you all the importance of plants, yeah. but it's so much more than just the water. You need the the habitat, and a lot of that involves these shallow seasonal wetlands that are much much more than just you know somebody's pond that you, they dug out that's ten feet deep. Most ducks are, you know, 16 inches long. They can't feed in, or at least most dabbling ducks can't feed in water that's more than a foot and a half deep. Okay, gotcha. So I, I don't want to drive us too off topic here, but you, I've heard you say dabbling ducks, diver ducks. How, how are the ducks kind of classified and grouped together into, like, what, what yeah. is a, a diver duck? So a diving duck is it's just that. It's a duck that, that dives for, you know, its food. It's It frequently dives. And then a dabbling duck is those ducks that don't so much dive. They okay. kind of feed on the surface or they may tip up and, you know, put their butt in the air, but they won't go underneath the water very much. And it's actually a little more in-depth than that. There's In diving ducks, you have what they call sometimes sea ducks, which aren't necessarily always in the mm-hmm. sea, but 
they're more um, that's more taxonomic the difference because you have you know the the poachers which are a lot of diving ducks or they sometimes called bay ducks and you've got the sea ducks which are a little bit different like long-tailed ducks and scoters mm-hmm. okay. and then you have the dabbling ducks but for the simplest sake the difference between you know you have a diving duck and a dabbling duck a diving duck dives and a dabbling duck dabbles <laughs> <laughs> and and what are some of each that some uh, some people might recognize so a mallard that's the classic dabbling duck okay you know Although I have seen them dive, that's just because mallards are extremely versatile. And <laughs> okay. but they most of the time they just dabble and they may tip up to feed. You know, wood ducks—they're another common dabbling duck. And northern pintail—that's a dabbling duck. Okay. And then when you have diving ducks, some of the most common are, you know, lesser and greater scop, canvasbacks, redheads. You know, those are the kind of some of the classic diving ducks. You know the one the one consistent thing that keeps getting mentioned that we really hadn't talked about like we we talked about native plants as far as food and cover and nesting, but we keep mentioning water. How how big of an issue is water quality, or is water quality a significant thing for ducks? Like if if the water quality isn't good, maybe they don't they won't stop there. I don't know if that's part of the restoration is to improve water quality. You know that's. Sometimes it's not a direct um, goal. I mean, it's always a goal, but sometimes it's not a direct goal of a project. But water quality benefits. Every restoration we do has water quality benefits. Okay. Wetlands, they act as you know the environment's kidneys. They help filter and, and clean the water. And you know, we talked about wild celery, and you mentioned how difficult it is to raise in a nursery setting. Yeah. It's water quality is vitally important to submerge aquatic vegetation. So you take somewhere like the Chesapeake Bay, which is historically very important for diving ducks. Unfortunately, the water quality, as water quality declines, that SAV habitat, you know, the SAV declines because it needs very high quality water. And as a result, as you lose that SAV, you lose the canvasbacks, you lose those redheads. And so it's really, water quality is very important to a number of different waterfowl. Do do fish numbers and duck numbers go hand in hand? Like if if there's like not a lot of fish because the water quality is poor, you maybe wouldn't see as many ducks. Well, it that depends. In in a lot of cases, in some smaller, shallower wetlands, it's actually it can be detrimental to have fish. Okay. Because I know in some shallow lakes and areas such as Iowa. Once you have fish in there, they increase the turbidity of the water. Gotcha. And once the turbidity goes up, water quality actually goes down because you know there's a lot of uh, accumulant in the mm-hmm. in the water that blocks the sun and keeps SAV from growing. But water quality, you know, fish can also be a good indicator in other cases, such as coastal marshes where northern pike may breed and spawn. So okay. it's it's a kind of a yes and no question or answer. Yeah. And even turbidity affects the, the the growth of of native emergence and aquatic species too. Mm-hmm. If it's too uh, too much turbidity, they they don't get enough sunlight to, to break yep. through that the the water. So you're really limiting even the plant life that you can have there and that affects the water quality. So mm-hmm. you know, it, it just it it's it just sounded like we kept skirting around water but really hadn't <laughs> yeah. really yeah. hadn't you know, brought it to the attention. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I know certain plants like wild rice, they need, you know, 
pretty high water quality as well. That's another emergent that's really important to dabbling ducks and diving ducks. Have, have you actually seen, or is there, in, say, in your area or the range that you cover, any pristine areas that, like, I know that's harder and harder. Like, you, you hear in Pennsylvania, like, like pristine trout waters are hard to find. Like, are pristine <laughs> duck habitats hard to find at this point? Well, no. I mean, they can be... Um, it's hard to define what what a pristine oh, habitat would true. be because a lot of the landscape, you know, take for instance the northern or the Montezuma Wetlands complex. Okay. I would consider that a pretty excellent waterfowl habitat there, but it's far from pristine, largely because the system has been so altered through, you know, the Erie Canal, which lowered water levels by like three meters in the region, oh. Oh. and it also, um then agriculture came in and, and changed a lot of it. But these restorations may not be kind of a perfect untouched habitat, but they can still provide what I might call pristine waterfowl habitat. Wow. The, you know, it's, I, I feel like this, <laughs> this is the first episode and this is episode number 34 mm-hmm. that I feel like a little kid. And I'm just like, <laughs> yeah. the, the questions that I'm coming up with, I was like, oh, I never thought about this or I never, what about <laughs> like, yeah. I, 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 it's the first time that I probably asked twice as many questions than we had prepared. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Just because. Oh, me too. I, it's like, <laughs> Hey, you keep saying like the dabbling duck thing. That was yeah. just something. I guess I've always heard dabbling ducks and diver ducks, but I never really knew. And I would have assumed it was some of them dive and some of them dabble, but I didn't really know which was which and outside of a, a few. So yeah. no, that was a good explanation. And I didn't want to assume either. Yeah. yeah. Like I thought it, but I wasn't going to ask that question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm loving this. I can talk about ducks for hours on end, so this is perfect for me. Oh, awesome. Well, that – go ahead, Tom. I'm sorry. You kind of mentioned a little bit of how you got involved with Ducks Unlimited, but what was your real, like, path into the the conservation industry? Um, I think you've mentioned parts here and there, but put it Mm -hmm. all in, like, one timeline for us. So, you know, Ducks Unlimited has a program where you can have young members. They call them green wings because they're the smallest duck, and so the kids – when they join as a member, they become green wings. And I was a green wing growing okay. up. And But then when I was in college, I had a pretty – I was very lucky, and I had an opportunity to volunteer on a, a research project that Ducks Unlimited was conducting in, in the prairies. So I got to go out and spend some time with Ducks Unlimited doing brood surveys of young waterfowl to kind of study, you know, brood success and – how that was may or you know may not be changing out there in the prairie pothole region of North Dakota, South Dakota, and Montana. And so I volunteered out there for summer, and that really opened some doors for me. It got me some experience, and it um, made some connections in within Ducks Unlimited. And then I, from there, I got a after I graduated my undergrad, I got a job as a technician, a seasonal technician with Delta Waterfowl, okay. another conservation nonprofit. So it's kind of that one little volunteer internship out in North Dakota kind of opened the doors for me, which I was, like I said, I'm very, very lucky that I could do that. 
You know, that's not the first story we've heard like that either. Like Michelle de Blasio from the Nature Conservancy, mm-hmm. she just happened to do an internship with the Nature Conservancy. Yeah. Who also or, went to ESF. I don't know if you ever crossed oh, nice. <laughs> And which Stumpy is, Pride. Which, yeah. is, which is a fantastic program. We've, yeah. we've actually worked with graduate students at ESF, Dr. Tony Elinardo, actually. Yeah. That's and how then, I, uh, I met him, yeah. was, was through his graduate project yeah. uh, at Onondaga Lake. And is that, what do the locals say, Tom? Is it Lake Onondaga or is it Onondaga Lake? I think it's Onondaga Lake. Lake. I, I right. never lived near Syracuse. I, I, I always <laughs> call I, it Onondaga Lake. Yeah, you're, okay. you're up in that. All right, perfect. I know I, I've heard, like, you have to say it one way and not the other. Like, so yeah. I just wanted to make sure I got it. Yeah. And did you have any classes with, with Don Leopold? Don Leopold was actually my co-advisor when wow. I was in grad school. We got to have him on. <laughs> <laughs> and that's... There's uh we haven't really talked about him much no. on on our podcast, but he's someone that uh, we always hear about. We've had some conversations <laughs> with, and um, I don't know why we didn't think about having him on sooner. We just talked about it maybe a, a couple weeks yeah. ago. We're like, yeah. I saw his book on our bookshelf. I'm like, oh, we got him on at some point. All just right, we'll we'll add him to name. the list. Yeah. We'll add him to the list. So Don, you, I, when I was working with Don, I was never a plant person until I started my grad program and between Don and my um my other advisor Mike Schumer they finally they made me a plant person and now I really really appreciate plants like I never did before mm. awesome <laughs> well that that leads in really well to our our next two mm-hmm. questions because you mentioned that you could talk about ducks all day and now you're a plant person <laughs> so do you have a favorite duck can you can you pick out of you know I'm, I'm curious what it is and why <laughs> so I've since I've been like a waterfowler, I've probably changed it a hundred times, but <laughs> and that's currently okay. my favorite duck is probably the Northern Pintail. Okay. It's just, I don't know. Are you familiar with what, with the Northern Pintail? I am not. I, I am a little bit, but uh, yeah, like Fran so said, he's not. I'm not. They're a really graceful duck. They're very long and slender. They're beautiful. They've got like white and kind of some grayish vermiculation on them and, a really nice rich chestnut head that's got some purple iridescence in it and it's they're beautiful ducks and the way they fly too is just extremely graceful i they're uh i have a soft spot in my heart for pintails not the least of which because it was the first duck i ever harvested when i was nine years old it's you know there's i have a question actually because i don't know is there a duck for for harvesting that for that is best for eating like is Mm -hmm. there um you know because you hear like you go into a restaurant and they serve duck but i have no idea what type of duck they're serving and i don't know if there's a difference in taste uh for all of these oh it's incredibly diverse the the flavor of ducks you've got all kinds and they all taste different and in fact you know you take a mallard which to most people a mallard is a very good duck Okay. Well, in some places they eat, they'll be eating fish or mm-hmm. you know little bait fish, and they taste absolutely terrible. Uh, but other times they'll be eating wild rice or or corn, and they're delicious. But northern pintails are another good one. They're they eat mostly the way their bill morphology is. They eat a lot of small seeds, okay. and that makes them very very tasty as well. Tom, do you do you have a favorite duck? I I don't. I like I've mentioned. Um... It might have been before we even started recording, but I used to duck hunt. I, that was one of the first kinds of hunting I got into. Okay, was uh, my dad and one of his friends who um, uh, 
Fran actually <laughs> knows. He's our local like soil and ins- or not soil inspector. Uh, what was his name? Uh, Kurt Hendricks. Oh, Kurt, uh, Kurt yeah. Hendricks. <laughs> He's okay, one of our yes. local uh, building inspectors. Yeah. And uh, they would take me out, and I remember when I was a little, like a little kid, probably six or seven, and we'd wake up early and drive down to a place on the <laughs> Delaware River and get in the duck blind, and I'd bring along my BB gun because that was going to – it made me feel like I was part of the team. <laughs> and um, and eventually my brother started coming along with us too. And uh, and then eventually as we got a little older and we got our hunting licenses when we were in like the 10 to 12-year-old range, um, then we'd actually start hunting too. And I know I'd – I've shot a duck, but I don't remember what it was. I don't remember what my first one was. And I probably haven't <laughs> gone uh, more than once or twice over the last decade, probably. But it's something I every year I say, oh, I want to start doing it again. And you just lose track of time, and <laughs> and I forget to buy my duck stamp. <laughs> it's the night before someone says, oh, yeah, you want to come with us? Well, I can't because I didn't have it. But it's, uh, That's why you need to buy it early. I yeah, always buy yeah, one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You should be buying two. Come on. Yeah. So, Ed, did you say you were from North Carolina? Is that where you said yes, you Yes, that's, so, that's where I was born and raised. So hunting in North Carolina and hunting in upstate New York uh, for duck, I'm, I'm assuming it's similar ducks or maybe even different ducks. Is, is it, Do you see a difference between the two places? Yeah, it's uh, they're actually, you know, a lot of them are the same ducks. Um, so I'm not sure how familiar you are with duck banding, but uh, they'll mark waterfowl with these little metal bands on their feet and it kind of shows you their migration paths you know a lot of and a lot of different other things but short story of it is i've actually harvested birds that were banded in new york and i've harvested them in north carolina Mm -hmm. which i think is really really neat and it shows the the connection there between the two and so it's a lot of the same ducks but the hunting is a little bit different because back home i'm from the coast, so I'd either hunt the salt marsh or I'd hunt um, some private property that my family owns. Whereas up here in New York, I'm hunting mostly public land and public waters, such as you know national wildlife refuges or wildlife management areas and stuff like that. So it's definitely a different kind of hunting, but uh, it's the same birds. Now, now it's funny because that's that's such a diverse range, and we're talking about native plants that they need to survive mm-hmm. on. You know, and, and you could be over multiple types of of uh, plant types. It could be Piedmont. It could be Appalachian. It could be a few different things in their flight path. But most mm-hmm. of the aquatics on the East Coast are all – you know, there's there's variations throughout. But a lot of them, when you look on plants.usda.gov, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you look up like soft rush or, or things like this, you're, you're seeing them pretty much native throughout the – the east coast so i'd imagine they, they need that i would imagine mm-hmm. to, they need that familiarity as along their way mm-hmm. but what's that you know kind of neat is you take a northern pintail it's actually a whole arctic species so you go to um they have them in russia you know they yeah. have northern okay. pintails across the entire northern hemisphere oh. and so there's think about the diverse plants that might be there or here and and actually someone in california they harvested a pintail that was banded in Japan. Wow. So I, it's mind-boggling to me that these birds are so, you know, versatile that they can survive on plants that might be in Japan or California. Hmm. Wow. Wow. And that may and maybe that's why throughout the 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 decades and the and the years they've been able to survive uh mm-hmm. just because they're so adaptable 
to to such a wide range of plants because mm-hmm. that takes Definitely. that takes yeah. tons of evolution. You know, one one thing you mentioned up the um, the banded ducks, and I think we should probably talk about that because it's another it's a wildlife I guess it would be considered wildlife research tactic that's mm-hmm. almost reliant on. Uh, on hunters reporting when they harvest banded animals, and it's not just um, just ducks; they do it with other species. I know my brother found um, actually a banded horseshoe crab <laughs> this year. <laughs> he didn't; he didn't, he just found it when he was uh, on the beach. Um, but he also he's a spear fisherman, and he harvested a uh, a banded or a tagged striped bass, and oh, wow. I, he has the he. Got it. Probably end of the summer, or early fall, and he. I just saw in the mail today. He got the letter with the certificate oh, wow. for reporting that he got <laughs> it. But but talk a little bit about that banding system um, and how important it is to uh, wildlife research and duck conservation. Yeah. So banding is a really really cool um, tool that you know waterfowl managers and people across you know the world use to help you know, learn about these, these birds. And like you said, fish and a lot of different things. So, you know, waterfowl are largely migratory, especially here in you know North America. So it can be difficult to you know, map those migration paths and banding is a great way to do that. And it also helps, helps us to understand mortality. See, you know, of these, of these banded birds, how many of them are, are dying? How many of them are, you know, being shot versus you know how many are being found and it's really a a really incredible technique to use to study these birds and hunting makes it a lot easier mm-hmm. <laughs> because harvesting the birds the only way you get the data back is if you find that band again mm-hmm. and so it's you know hunting makes you gives you such a larger data set they do like you say band other species like I know they ban um, hummingbirds, for instance, mm. and the yeah, the main way you that. get those. Yeah, it's really cool. The pans are absolutely tiny, like, <laughs> <laughs> and the only way you can get you know the information is if you recapture that same bird, which mm-hmm. is something that can often be uh, difficult yeah. because there's a lot of them and you don't catch many of them. Yeah, and so hunting is a way. Um, it's a banding is a way to to utilize hunting and let us understand more about these birds and you know it gives all kinds of information beyond just you know the migration paths but that's often you know the easiest one for people to understand because you say all right it was banded in canada and then it was harvested in north carolina so you can draw a straight line between the two and you know you know for a fact they were in both those places Mm -hmm. gotcha Gotcha. How far is the migration? You know, we keep talking about migration, and you know, I I don't know how how far that migration goes. And I, and I was going to ask you earlier, and we kind of got away from it, but describe those different flyways as well, because there's different migration paths that um that, that different ducks take. Yeah, and so the the flyways were developed through band results, band returns, and there's four main flyways in the United States or in North America. You have the Atlantic Flyway, which is just what it sounds. It's kind of down the Atlantic coast. Okay. You've got the um, the Mississippi Flyway, which is kind of along the Mississippi River. You've got the Central Flyway, which covers a lot of the, you know, the Great Plains and those areas. And then you have the Pacific Flyway, which, again, similar to the Atlantic, it's just on the other 
on the left side of the country. And okay. it's kind of a, a way to manage these populations because often there's less intermixing between flyways. And okay. so the Pacific flyway has different hunting regulations than the Atlantic flyway because you're hunting different birds and there's different pressures. And so you okay. can tailor them based on those flyways. With that being said, they're not 100%. You know, birds do cross between them. Yeah. Um, this year I harvested a, a pintail that was banded in Wisconsin, which is in the, the Mississippi Flyway, but okay. I harvested it here in New York and the Atlantic Flyway, so they do cross them. But it is a, a general you know, guide that we can use. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I had no idea just how far, like you, you mentioned Canada and North Carolina, and I was like, oh, mm-hmm. I don't know what the, where, you know, how far they go, like what's, like mm-hmm. what's their final destination <laughs> <laughs> so it's really it depends on the bird i mean some birds winter so you know you have the breeding season and the wintering season and in between you have the migration and some birds winter further south than others and some birds breed further south or further north than others so you have arctic nesting geese such as atlantic brant they breed way up north you know, really high up in the tundra. And then you have some mallards that breed here in, you know, New York, and you have black ducks that may breed in New Jersey even. And so you have these different birds, and they have differing migration styles. And it's just, it kind of depends on the bird. And even within species, you have differences where I've seen mallards that winter in New York and breed there, but some mallards go all the way down to, you know, North Carolina. And there's actually some mallards that winter in South Carolina that come from Michigan and the Great Lakes. So it's like, it's, it's a really diverse migration styles and, and decisions that they make. Once a duck, once you know, let's say a specific band of ducks migration period, is it predictable at that point or, or destination? Like are they hitting the same places each time or will it vary year to year? Often it does, um, but it also – it depends on the species and it depends on um, the bird. So females are often more phylopatric than males, meaning they are more place-oriented. They go back to the same breeding place. They go back to the same wintering place okay. more often than the males. And often because the pair bonding between ducks in most cases is not lifetime pairing, they do it yearly. It's you know They're seasonally monogamous, so they, okay. they form pair bonds – on the migration pass or on the wintering pass. And then the, the drake, which is another term for a male, will then follow the female up to her breeding area. Okay. So they've had ducks that literally will nest in the exact same spot, like on the remains of her previous year's nest. Mm-hmm. And oh, a successful hen, if she has a successful nest, she's more likely to go back there than if she has a, an unsuccessful nest. Okay. Man, I learned so much today. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I just started thinking, and you might have seen me smile, yeah. man, because I was like, man, Agatha is in for a <laughs> She's getting a whole earful tonight. <laughs> tonight and this weekend. She's going to know everything there is to know about ducks. <laughs> so we, we, we mentioned what your favorite duck was. So this is always our final question, and you, you mentioned you've become a, a, a native plant person. So do you have a favorite native plant? Mm, and why? Yeah, I... I, I think if I had to say my favorite native plant, it's it's hard to pick between you know between a lot of the ones that I did when I was doing my studies in Montezuma for my research. But I like I think I like burr reed, like the giant burr reed is probably okay. my favorite. Nice. It's 
it's kind of a a neat plant. It looks cool. Ducks eat it. It's and I always love when you take the seed head right when it's at that shatter stage and you just like break it up and it just falls apart in your hand. That's always really satisfying. Nice. And that's that's another di- sparganium is another difficult one to grow, yeah. but it's mm-hmm. but that that takes can take permanent inundation doesn't have to like it's Mm -hmm. it's pretty adaptable i don't think anyone's actually i don't think we've had any one guest duplicate i don't think so either it's been (laughs) yeah but but one of the things i've noticed is the majority of our guests pick something that's really pertinent to other things they're passionate about yeah like in this case it's ducks we've had like in other cases turkeys or deer or or birds or quail or it's always been something that's uh that's really topical to their their main passion yeah so it's been yeah. really interesting that, learning everyone's uh, native plants and and why they love them so much and no one's picked ours either we haven't no, had no. A, a, i don't remember what yours was what was on the I, first episode i think mine i was, said liatris but i don't remember okay mine was was blue flag iris mm-hmm. i don't think anyone oh else. i love that one that's like yeah. you know i i love that one i could wax poetic about that one for, <laughs> for hours but you know i just love how beautiful it is in its simplicity mm-hmm. and it's it's early flowering but it's versatile it can take a dry it can take six inches of permanent inundation um it, there's just it can be used in phytoremediation uh there's so many positives for that one and it's easy to grow um you know it's, it's very iconic for me that's why yeah. we use it at started using it as the logo yeah because yep. i got oh. to choose it <laughs> <laughs> but so that that pretty much I, I don't think I have any other questions, do you? Not that are coming to mind right now. I'm sure there's gonna be tons of like, things that pop I mean, up. have this you ever seen our... me make this many notes? <laughs> no. Like questions? Like I've I don't think I've this ever is, uh, taken that many notes. Yeah. But it's for both of us, like I I know a little bit about ducks and, and you I didn't knew know nothing. much at all. I knew nothing. Even though we'd like to talk about plants and restorations, it's so fascinating to find out why these restorations are important in this case it's ducks and i kind of mentioned in the beginning they're so unique and each species is different it's not like with with deer turkeys or elk where there's one target species yeah there's like you mentioned there's there's uh tens of them in this case (laughs) so it's and each one has their little intricacies whether it's the bill morphology or if it's uh the coloring or, or even just male to female all the differences so it's they're really fascinating birds i i what i found most interesting i think is that for all the different animals that we've covered throughout these episodes it they're either in decline or way overpopulation you know yeah. you have deer on one end <laughs> yeah. which are you know out of control and then you have quail which are non-existent yeah. but then ducks have you know, seem to remain pretty steady, you know, and I find that really interesting that, mm. you know, and, and more than likely it's, it's due to the efforts of Ducks Unlimited and things like that. Mm. Because when you're restoring that habitat, it helps so many other habitats, but it's also a, a distinct habitat too. You know, it's maybe not the same habitat you're going to find deer yeah. or anything like that. They're, they're not as impacted. Like what are the biggest, see, I came up with another question <laughs> for, for, predation like what what are their predators like what what do ducks have to be fearful of in the wild uh pretty much everything <laughs> <laughs> all right everything likes to eat a duck i mean it it changes throughout the the 
course of a year and across the seasons. I know that you know ravens and crows can predate nests mm. or prey upon mess, nests pretty good and eat eggs and skunks, raccoons. Those are off you know awful on nests and um, a lot of times during the wintering areas, you know, eagles are they are constantly harassing ducks, uh, peregrine falcons. You know the oh, okay. the common name that a lot of people call peregrine falcons used to be duck hawk because hmm. they would yeah that's what they would yeah. prey upon yeah. quite often and I actually saw there was a a great blue heron I saw grab a fully like an adult bufflehead which is a type of duck hmm. which I was kind of amazed wow <laughs> but pretty much everything will will eat a duck if it gets the chance it, it's funny because in our native plants healthy planet Facebook group. Recently, I posted a picture of a great blue heron, which is where I saw the ducks. Yeah. And it was it was literally like moving really slow about five feet from the ducks. <laughs> but the ducks didn't seem scared. But it was like – that's when I took the picture, and yeah. I, I should have taken pictures of the ducks. So yeah. I wish I would have stayed and watched a little bit. That would have been a great picture yeah. there. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen snapping turtles eat ducks even. And really? Fish, fish will eat the ducklings. Yeah. I know, I remember I always thought that was a weird um fishing lure is they have the like the duckling fishing lure and mm-hmm. I always wondered how effective it was <laughs> but but it made me think oh I hadn't thought about fish eating ducklings but yeah. it must happen if they're making a fishing lure of it wow yeah, yeah they've got videos of it on you know online where you mm-hmm. can see all of a sudden you'll see a shadow come up underneath a duck or a little duckling and next thing you know it's gone oh I don't think I want to watch that video. (laughs) No, it's not very fun. So this is when we we open it up to – we do a final thought, um, and we open the floor to you, uh, and you can use this time any way you want. If if there's something you want to promote, if there's something that we didn't cover, uh, if if you just want to summarize, the the floor is yours, and you can can say whatever you want. Oh, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I mean one thing that – really jumped out to me it was something that you just mentioned was the fact that ducks have remained you know largely stable in their populations over the years well many are not they're declining or they're in um you know overpopulated there was actually a recent uh, research project where they studied bird populations in north america and almost as a rule they were declining in some cases precipitously you know, grassland birds were declining and, um, you know, water birds, like open water birds were declining. And waterfowl, ducks, geese, and swans were one of the few groups that were not. Wow. And one of the things they, you know, attributed that to was conservation efforts. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, you know, it's not just Ducks Unlimited, it's other groups like the Audubon Society, Delta Waterfowl, you know, all these different groups are working together, you know, not just hunters, but Hunters are a large part of that, but I think it's a really neat success story that when you have a common goal, everyone can work together. And when you look at these restorations and you know these conservation projects that Ducks Unlimited and others do, it's really a win-win for everybody. Yeah. And so I'm, I just like to to tout wetlands conservation as something that everybody should get behind, and I think it's something that we can, if you think about it for a little bit. It really is, you know, a net gain for pretty much everybody. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, completely, completely. You know, and I think it gets overlooked really the f- the function of wetlands too, and, mm-hmm. and how they clean our water and mm-hmm. and and their overall function. If they decline, we decline as a race as well. You know, we Definitely. we we totally need you know functional wetlands uh, in our ecosystem to survive. For so. sure, that's something that often gets lost in the shuffle. Is when you look at someone who has a wetland on their on their property, for instance, they can't build a build on it you can't build a house on it or you know build a gas station and they see that as a a negative what they don't see is all those benefits that come with it like aquifer recharge water quality improvements you know flood retention these wetlands like you say are critical to people and the sooner that i think people can really appreciate that the better we'll all be i i agree that's a great final thought that's a great fun thought. Tom, you want to go or you want me to I go? I can go. All right. And this is this I'm, is going to be a Fran-esque kind of ooh, rant, I think. I, and I got to <laughs> tell you, my final one is going to be like – like it's going, <laughs> it's going to be very anticlimactic. Yeah. So so uh, my wife's really recently got into Grey's Anatomy, which I don't even – that came out over That's, 10 years ago. Yeah. Probably 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, but she'd never watched it. It's on Netflix. Are you watching it? She started, I've been right. watching episodes here and there. You know, off topic real quick, <laughs> you wouldn't mention what your favorite movie was in the buzz. Is it The Notebook? No, no, no. <laughs> I don't, I'm just, I haven't seen The Notebook. I have seen I have, P.S. I Love You, but I haven't seen The Notebook. I have not so. seen any. I'm just um, teasing. But she's, so she's watching Grey's Anatomy, and last night, I had I just looked it up to see what season and episode it was. It was season two, episode nine. Okay. Uh, and it was, it was titled, uh, Where'd It Go? I've lost it. It was about Thanksgiving. Okay. And but the one the one guy his um his family came and they always did like a turkey hunt on Thanksgiving, which isn't turkey season. So that I'll throw that out. <laughs> <laughs> but um and he didn't want to shoot a turkey, but he did do oblige his family and his family they they made his two brothers and dad seem kind of like idiotic and they're beer drinking and shooting guns in the air and all this stuff. And um, it's just a stereotype. It's really perpetuated through media. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it was, it's like I was complaining to my wife. I'm like, I can't. I just don't understand why they do all this all the time. Because there's obviously hunters that are like that. But if you listen to the Taze episode, you can clearly see that there's hunters who aren't like that. And I think most of the the real outdoors men and women who are doing. Uh, probably a minority of the people who would say they hunt um, but are doing most of the hunting are also tend to be great conservationists and are not just passionate about going out and, and killing game. They're also passionate about the habitat and the land. And um, that's why you see a lot of these groups like Ducks Unlimited, like QDMA, like uh, National Wild Turkey Federation. You have backcountry hunters and anglers. You have 2% for conservation. All these organizations that are doing so much just to preserve public lands, private lands, preserve the habitat for uh, the the animals they love so much um, because it's not just about the animals and, and harvesting the animals. There's a portion of it is, but a lot of it's just being outside and and enjoying it. And uh, it's, I don't know, it's just hard for me to watch sometimes when you, yeah. like, you have that episode and it's like making them out like they're just a couple rednecks who just like shooting guns and drinking beer when that's not really, really the case. I agree. I agree. So. All right, you ready? You ready for mine? I'm ready. All right. So <laughs> it may have just gotten longer during <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> during years, and I had time to think about it. So we have covered, 
you know, this is episode 34. We have covered so many different topics and, and all ranging through our ecosystem. And we've talked about birds, ducks, animals, insects, humans, uh, so many different things. And the center of that universe isn't humans. Mm-hmm. It's native plants. You can put native plants in the middle of that universe and you can plot your pins and, and tie your strings and they all relate back to that. So so many functions we need that they're the ones capturing the sun's energy they're the ones uh, transferring that energy on to so many different things and what they depend on and without that it you know that's a keystone definitely a keystone species in that that diagram Mm -hmm. so uh don't take it for granted uh we all depend on them Mm -hmm. and this is another you know there's so many things that you don't even think about like when we started this I don't know if I was sitting here thinking about ducks, but no. now I am <laughs> because I'm constantly learning and I'm constantly adding that to the mix. Mm-hmm. So I, I honestly, I was thinking the same thing this morning when I was getting ready to come to work. I was uh, thinking about today's episode and saying it's like it's all the spokes on the wheel. Like all yeah. the guests we have are the spokes on the wheel, but there's that pinwheel in the center. Yeah. And then I guess you could say the axle is probably the soil. Oh, and the soil. Yeah, I'm, I'm not discrediting yeah. the soil. The soil. It all begins with yeah. the soil because without the soil, the the plants, yep. the so. plants don't exist either. But so. uh, but yeah, it all kind of revolves around that habitat, which is is supplied by the plants. Yeah. So, so no, that's that sums it up pretty yeah. well. Wow, that's all three of us. That was yeah about us <laughs> most profound that we've gotten between because there's always one person, and it's typically me yeah. that just <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But wow, that was that was wonderful. Tom, I'll throw it over to you. So yeah, so thank you guys for joining us today. We hope you enjoy listening to Ed Fairley from Ducks Unlimited. For more information about Ducks Unlimited, visit www.ducks.org. Um, Ed, do you guys have a specific page for your your chapter, your region? Um, we do. You can actually on the um, the main page, you can go in and actually go to state by state and kind of navigate around to wherever you live and check out the individual programs for for your own state. Actually, when Tom, when you went on the website, you said there was a very complimentary yeah, article yeah. about it. an article right about the... you leading, like leading New York's conservation program. So. Wow, there you go. Yeah. We have a superstar. Yeah. <laughs> so, Thank you all very much. Oh, anytime. I would love to give a big uh, shout out to Stephen Marr for contributing our theme music. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland Nursery, Facebook uh, at Pinelands Nursery NJ, Instagram at Pinelands Nursery, and YouTube at Pinelands Nursery. We don't we no one interacts with us on Twitter. I'm taking that personally yeah. since I do a lot <laughs> yeah. of our Twitter <laughs> Twitter account. Maybe it's maybe I'm the the problem there. So um, <laughs> uh, don't forget we do have the question and answer line. Uh, you can call us two one five three four six six one eight nine. I'll repeat that. 215-346-6189. Uh, we have a lot of people asking us how they can ask us questions. That's a great place to do it. Um, if you yeah, leave We your... don't answer these quest- questions for free. You got to yeah. contribute to our content in some way. Yes, you have to you like and I I I feel horrible sometimes when people ask yeah. us on their Facebook group and I go, "No, you have to call. Yeah. If you want the answer, you have to call." So, um, if we pick your question or comment, we play it on a future episode of the Buzz and we will answer it. So, and let's not forget get the native plants healthy planet facebook group it's been tremendous yeah i i I couldn't have hoped for more than the amount of new members and the conversations going on i'm really proud of 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 how 
how well everyone's playing nicely. Yes, me too. <laughs> so you can listen to Native Plants Healthy Planet directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com. You can also check us out on Apple Podcasts. Um, uh, where is it? Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you consume your podcast. You can even ask Alexa to play the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. And she will. And she will do it. Yes, I, I've, I've tested that out a bunch. <laughs> but, uh, and when you're doing that, when just take a little bit of time. Um, leave a five-star review. Those really help. And share this with a friend and ask them to subscribe as well because that goes a long way for, for us. So. For, for making that circle bigger and getting you, – when you go into someone else's house and they have an Alexa – make it play the native plants out just say hey alexa i do that i i've made it a point to start doing that (laughs) just so i can hear my own voice so with that thanks again everyone i'm tom and i am fran thanks again everyone ed thank you so much this is this has been wonderful i we really appreciate you coming on and spending time with us today Thank you all very much. Uh, anytime. Uh, we have uh, – Oh, with that? No, Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy this New Year. The, yeah, this, this is, is the last the one. This is the last one. So we have a lot of great stuff coming up in the new year. We just uh, – I just wrote down all the guests that we have that have agreed to come on and mm-hmm. all of our roundtable ideas. There, there's so much coming up. Next year is going to be even greater year for the podcast. I, I, I agree. So uh, until then, thanks again, everyone. Until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planted Podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.